Thanks, Jocelyn, and thanks for everyone who continues to contribute each week to our service, both here in the room and uh, through videos from home. <clears throat> Genesis 18 and 19 is where we are today. Chapter 18, verse 14. God himself asked the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Confronted with what appears to be insurmountable issues and bottomless trouble when it seems that death, disease, disappointment and despair hold all the power in the world, how does God's question land for you? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? We know that there's great beauty and goodness and enjoyment and satisfaction in the world that God has made for us, but there's too much heartbreaking brokenness. There's too much fatal foolishness and selfish sinfulness that fills our calendars and our news feeds and our streets and our homes and fills our very own hearts. And this week it has felt, hasn't it, like a cascade of disaster and despair. Out of control virus, devastating famine, heartbreaking scenes of desperate and dying humans in Afghanistan, cruel and unusual tyrants, selfish and foolish protesters. And according to Lifeline and Beyond Blue, way too much despair inside our homes and inside our minds. So as we come with Abraham <clears throat> on the journey to life, which is the journey of faith, we're confronted with that same question for our time and for our lives, is the world too far gone? Is God powerless or disinterested? Am I beyond the reach of his love and outside of his grace? And so God's own question lands at our feet this morning. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The challenge for us in the story of Abraham and his journey to life, which is the journey of faith, is will we take God at his word? Will we trust that he is who he says he is? And he will do what he says he'll do. The place of life and hope for all of us in this world is the place of trusting God and his promises. And so being children of Abraham is what we want to be in the way that Romans 4 explains it, which you'll see on the screen, that Abraham is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. It is not beyond God to give a son to elderly parents. It is not beyond God to save and to judge if he can speak the universe into existence, then his promises are worth listening to and believing him with all our lives. 
is anything too hard for the Lord. It is a challenge thrown down by God to trust Him. And the rest of Genesis 18 and 19 says that we can and we should. Because here's our three points if you're playing along at home. We can and we should trust Him because He's relationally committed, He's perfectly just and He's graciously merciful. God is relationally committed, He's perfectly just and He's graciously merciful. And so nothing is too hard for Him and we can trust Him with everything that we've got. Have a look back at chapter 18, verse 1, where we see that God is relationally committed. When Chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Uh, if you've been here week on week, we've been seeing throughout the 25 years since God first made his promises to Abraham and Sarah, that as they struggle to comprehend his promises, as they struggle to hold on to his promises amidst doubt and fear and the painful passing of time, God continually and repeatedly confirms his word of promise to them. And he keeps recommitting himself to the same plan. He will provide a place and give them the land. He will provide a people and give them a son and a nation. And he will be for them a blessing and their family will be a blessing for the whole world through one global family that is born through this ageing couple. And here in chapter 18, another recommitment from God doesn't come by way of vision or dream or simply a word that is implanted or heard, it comes personally through a visit as the relational Lord of the universe comes and sits with them and eats with them and stands with them in reassurance of his commitment to the promises that he has made. The guests that Abraham and Sarah welcome in chapter 18 and they provide a royal banquet for are identified for us. It is the Lord himself turning up in his world and as chapter 19 verse 1 tells us, the other two people, the other two with him are angels. The reassurance of commitment comes as they share a royal banquet and as one of the guests says in chapter 18, verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So what was a natural improbability before had now become a biological impossibility as Sarah had ceased to have a menstrual cycle, which our translation puts delicately as being beyond the age of childbearing. Divine providence and supernatural intervention is now the only way that these promises would be fulfilled. So, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? 
Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Her laughter of disbelief and incredulity, incredulity, within the year, that's going to become the laughter of blessing from the divine hand of the God for whom nothing is impossible. And he's come to provide relational reassurance of his promise-keeping ability and his utter commitment to his people. But he's also here for another reason, a contrasting reason, because he hears and he acts when it comes to the cries of the oppressed and the lament of wickedness that is total and that is horrible. In verse 20, he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have, have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And so as our attention then shifts from God's promises to Abraham and Sarah to God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the second reason that nothing's impossible for him and that we can perfectly and we can absolutely trust him with all that we have is because he is not only relationally committed but he is perfectly just. And God's discussion with Abraham at the end of chapter 18, that dialogue expresses a concern that I'm sure many of us have shared, haven't we? That where do the righteous fit in God's judgment as he holds the world accountable, as we long for him to do, to not let evil and injustice and sinfulness and wickedness go unchecked? But what about the righteous people, the good people, the innocent people? Will they be swept away? And it's like Abraham negotiates with God, except it's a one-way negotiation. It's kind of like Abraham counting down and trying to think about the people that he knows who are in Sodom and Gomorrah, who might be righteous. 50? Probably not. 45? Probably not. 30? Maybe. Who is there? Lot? His family? Maybe 10? What if there's 10? I will spare them. And the fact that God's judgment is then swift and total on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah reminds us, doesn't, doesn't it, of what God says in his word, that there is no one righteous, not even one. In the context of our story of Genesis 18, the only one God has counted as righteous, not because of his own inherent righteousness, but because of his faith in God's promises, the one God counts as righteous is Abraham. 
as we arrive at Sodom and Gomorrah to see if there is anyone righteous and to see if the wickedness is as bad as God has heard it is bad. We see that Lot, who previously had been heading towards Sodom and Gomorrah and camping outside Sodom and Gomorrah, is now having, has moved all the way into the very centre of the city's life and ways. That as the two angels arrive in Sodom, Lot is at the city gate, he's right in the middle of this business, this wicked business and the direction of this evil place. He's embraced and he's involved in the ways of wickedness and evil. And the Apostle Peter will in the New Testament, tell us that Lot was conflicted by the wickedness that he saw and experienced in Sodom. But the picture we get in chapter 19 is that he knew by experience the reality of this wickedness. He didn't want to let his visitors stay out in the city uh, centre knowing that they would be molested and beaten and maybe killed there. And so he brings them into his home. And that movement of Lot into the very centre of the city's life and wickedness, it reminds us of the warning that we receive in Psalm 1, doesn't it? About what not to do. To not walk in the way of sinners or to stand with mockers or to sit with those who are opposed to God and His ways. Be careful of becoming more and more set in the ways of evil and injustice. Be careful about becoming more and more conflicted and determined in the path away from God and His Word. Be careful at listening to the foolishness of the world and being conformed to the patterns of sin and selfishness. But instead, Psalm 1 reminds us and Romans 12 reminds us, be be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by delighting in the word of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. In the midst of a world that is sinful and foolish and broken and evil, we constantly need to have God's Word correcting us and rebuking us and training us in righteousness. And so the question is, is Sodom and Gomorrah as bad as God first thought? Lot brings these visitors into his home, he expresses hospitality and care for them, but verse 4, Chapter 19, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and to shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you'd like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, now he wants to play the judge. 
we'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. When you're confronted with that scene, you're meant to feel sick, I think. People ask the question, why doesn't the Bible condemn Lot's actions, even as the actions of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are condemned, offering his young daughters to this unruly mob. One of the answers, I think, is that it's so blindingly obvious that what's on display is that there is two decisions in front of this mob and one decision is horrendous sexual violence and the other option is horrendous sexual violence. There is no good, there is no redeeming quality, there is nothing to be approved of and commended, there is nothing good in this situation at all. It's sickening and it's awful and it's a picture of the total and utter depravity of this evil city and that God is warranted and right and just to bring swift justice and judgment upon them. And it's true, isn't it, that that's a picture of our world in so many ways. In one book I read this week, uh, David Wells, the late um, David Wells, in his book, No Place for Truth, says this, he says, there is violence on the earth, the liberated search only for power, industry despoils the earth, the powerful ride roughshod over the weak, the poor are left to die on the on street gates, the unborn are killed before they can ever see the rich and beautiful world that God has made, the elderly are encouraged to get on with the business of dying so that we might take their place, the many forms that violence takes in our world provides stunning reminders of how false have been the illusions about freedom which we have been enticed with in the West. The picture we're given of this city, including Lot and his family, is that no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. There is no one who does what is right. All of them are depraved. And so as God's judgment is then coming upon this city in justice and righteousness you have to ask the question of why is anyone saved? And the answer, I think, lies in verse 29. 
that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of that catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Why does God rescue Lot? Not because he remembered Lot and his righteousness. He has demonstrated by example and by word and by deed and by failure that he is unrighteous. No, God is remembering Abraham and the righteousness that Abraham has by faith. And it's on the basis of Abraham's righteousness that God is graciously merciful to Lot and his family. And so chapter 19, verse 15, we see God graciously providing mercy and rescue for those who do not deserve it. Just as he does for you and for me, when he graciously provides mercy for us on the basis not of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And so verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. And when he hesitated... Lot's got to be dragged out of the city. He's reluctantly saved. The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had, been brought, had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Even then, in the midst of their rescue, Lot's reluctant to leave and doesn't want to go to the mountains in the way that the rescue has been orchestrated. And as he is being dragged out, with the warning from the angels, don't look back, then Lot's wife does what? She looked back, verse 26. And this wasn't simply a glance to see what had taken place behind them. This was a looking back in a way that said, I really wish I could stay there. And I don't think I want to drag my heart away from the things and the people and the actions of that city. And it's that kind of looking back with longing and desire for the sinful ways and direction of the world that means Lot's wife is struck down and becomes a pillar of salt, verse 26. And a few thousand years later, Jesus himself, when talking to us about the terrible day of God's judgment, 
about the importance of trusting in Him and His righteousness, being mercifully rescued from the ways and the direction of our sinful world, Jesus Himself, a few thousand years later, would say in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. As we live in a world that is totally depraved, the direction and the desires and the behaviour of this world are running headlong to hell... under the just and right judgment of God. And Jesus says, don't look back. Don't have your heart so attached to the sinful ways of this world that you long for the things of this world, that you cling to possessions. In Luke 17, Jesus says, on that day, no one who's on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to them. Don't be attached to things. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. You can't go back. Don't be looking back. Don't be looking into the way of sin and foolishness and evil and wickedness. Be looking to Jesus. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says, because whoever tries to keep their life in this sinful and depraved generation will lose their life. But whoever allows Jesus to mercifully rip their hands and their hearts off the things of this world and the sinful desires of our own hearts by His grace, trusting in His promises, whoever loses their life, Jesus says, will preserve it and be saved. And just in case we wanted to think that Lot and his daughters were saved because of their own righteousness, chapter 19 finishes with another debauched scene of drunkenness and incest. And I think we're meant to be left feeling quiet and sick and to be sobered by the scenes of these chapters. It is so obviously wicked all of it is wrapped up in God's, this narrative of God judging sin and holding people accountable for how they treat others and whether they trust Him. And as we're confronted with it and reflect on the reality of our own hearts and the situation of our own times, it should make us long even more for the day of God's justice. It should cause us to pray for our city that God would pour out His Spirit and turn the hearts of people away from sin and selfishness and back towards Him. It should not cause us to look longingly at the things of this world 
at the sinful behaviour that has the appearance of fun and frivolity but is deeply flawed and fatally foolish and sinful. But in the midst of this picture of awfulness and judgment and warning, we're reminded of the relationally committed God who sat with Abraham to reassure him of his faithfulness to his promises and who mercifully rescues unrighteous people because of the righteousness of another. And so we're again simply reminded that he is utterly trustworthy and we can trust him with everything. We can lose our lives in this world for the sake of the gospel and find our life in Jesus. Because even in the midst of the awfulness, we have these glimmers of hope. Even as we're shocked and dismayed at the awful behaviour that finishes chapter 19 and hopefully not in a way that points fingers but that kind of quietly reflects on our own lives. As we look at the end of chapter 19 through the lens of God's big picture, what are we reminded of? We're reminded that though God remains just and he keeps account of how people are treated and won't let evil and wickedness go unpunished, aren't we thankful for that? That he sees and he hears and he knows what's happening in Afghanistan and in Somalia and in Sydney. And thank the Lord he will hold this world to account. But we're reminded that he also delights to bring beauty from ashes and redemption from the pit and reconciliation from the brokenness and offers forgiveness to the sinner. For the first readers of this sordid tale, it's an explanation for them of the sinfulness of the world and the wickedness and the persistent, um, of their persistent en enemies, the Ammonites and the Moabites, the result of Lot's daughter's incestuous relationship with their father. But do you remember where we were two months ago? And the story of a young woman who would come from these Moabites, one who is a, a, a relative, a daughter of this incestuous and awful relationship. That in the story of Ruth, God's unexpected kindness would once again reach into the awfulness of this broken and divided world and this story of sinfulness and wickedness and bring his redeeming grace and his saving mercy 
as Ruth the Moabitess, one born from the mess, who is brought into God's grace. But she, like Abraham, would be foundational to the family line of the Lord Jesus, the great son of Abraham, the one who would bring blessing to all nations the one through whom we have been blessed and the one in whose righteousness we stand, claiming nothing of ourselves, but all of God's grace and His mercy and His kindness, even as we pray for His justice and His judgment to fall upon the evil and the wickedness of this world and giving eternal thanks that the justice we deserve and the judgment that rightly belong to us has been taken by the righteousness of Jesus and his death on the cross. Is anything too hard for the Lord? extraordinary the way our faithful and sovereign God works through broken and divided people and nations to bring beauty from ashes, to bring mercy and kindness where it's never deserved, all because of the righteousness of the one man Jesus. And so we can trust him with everything we've got. Not looking back from where he has saved us. And trusting that he will set all things right. And make all things new. Amen. We're going to sing again as we reflect on the amazing love of our Lord Jesus.